Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Charlotte DeCruz Jacobs about her biography of the 20th century medical researcher, Jonas Salk. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, I'm a uh, professor of medicine uh, at Stanford University. I grew up in uh, Northeast Tennessee, and um, at that time, uh, as a child, or I guess as a grade school student, I was struck by two things. One, I saw a movie at our local kids club called The Microbe Hunters. And after seeing that movie at, I think, about the age of six, I decided I wanted to be a doctor and there was no dissuading me. Even though at that period in time, I would say about 90% of women uh, in the United States were housewives. And the second thing is that during uh, my grade school years, my favorite thing to read was biography. And we had a whole collection of the Bob Smarrow children's biographies, and I made sure that I read every single one, some twice. <laughs> I graduated from uh, Washington University School of Medicine and trained uh, at Stanford University in cancer, and I have spent my entire career there. I've um, mostly done patient care, research, teaching. I've been the dean for student education and the director of the Clinical Cancer Center. And right now, I still uh, work uh, predominantly taking care of veterans with cancer. That's how I wanted to end my medical career. Uh, Midway through my career, I had a sabbatical, and I spent it studying creative writing and then biography writing. Um, My first biography is entitled Henry Kaplan and the Story of Hodgkin's Disease. It was published by Stanford University Press in 2010. And Henry Kaplan, who's not a household name, uh, certainly is in the world of cancer. He's an esteemed and very controversial physician scientist who really changed the course of cancer therapy. He developed the linear accelerator, which is the machine used to develop to deliver radiation today. And he was responsible for the cure of a disease called Hodgkin's disease, which uh, is a cancer of predominantly young adults. When I um, finished with that, I I loved the process of writing biography, and I spent another year trying to determine who I wanted to spend my next uh, 10 years with, and there was no question but that it would be uh, Jonas Salk. Now, there's a, a, a little bit of a, uh, of a personal uh, reason, um, and that is uh, he was, I think, the greatest hero of my generation uh, when he made the polio vaccine. And uh, in 1954, uh, polio was rampant. Uh, there were, it, it, it really cast a shadow over every summer. Um, it was called the summer plague. And it came almost every May, leaving at Labor Day, leaving thousands of, of kids maimed or, or dead. Um, 
in the summer, swimming pools were closed, theaters were closed, birthday parties canceled as parents tried to protect their children. But there was really little they could do because it's a highly infectious disease, which then goes on to be crippling. In 1954, my town, Kingsport, Tennessee, was selected as a trial site for uh, the test of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine that was funded and conducted by the March of Dimes. Every child knew about the March of Dimes. We all collected dimes for it. And I was a second grader at the time and participated in the trial. So I was pal- pr- very proud to be called a polio pioneer. And a year later, when it was announced that his vaccine was a success, that polio could be conquered, as I say, he became one of the greatest heroes of my generation. That's one of the things I, I noticed as I was reading your book is that it's not just about uh, Jonas Salk's life, but you're also describing how he becomes this iconic figure in, uh, in in not just American culture, but really in the world as this person who has you know done this remarkable thing in defeating this disease with his vaccine. That's true. He was for years, actually, as people give their top 10 lists of people that they most admire. Uh, He was in that top 10 list along with Churchill, Roosevelt, on and on. So he was uh, Martin Luther King. He he was always considered an an icon throughout his life, which really became almost like an albatross, uh, the proverbial albatross around his neck, as we'll talk about later. One of the things I thought was interesting was how he attains this stature as this great, uh, respected uh, scientific figure, and his beginnings could not possibly be more humble. I was wondering if you could uh, explain a bit uh, where he comes from and how it was that he decided to embark upon a career in medicine. Okay. Well, he was born uh, on October 28th in 1914, and he was born in East Harlem, his mother uh, told him he was born with a call, C-A-U-L, that thin amniotic membrane covering his face uh, that meant that he was destined for greatness. Um, and that was pretty unlikely because he was shy. He was submissive, a first-generation Jewish immigrant, and he was most comfortable with his books uh, rather than with other children. But he believed his mother, and he, uh, his brothers told me that he used to pray daily that uh, one day he would perform um, a noble deed. Um, and uh, so he worked very, very hard. Uh, he went to, was uh, accepted into Townsend Harris High School in New York City, which was a, uh, a select high school that he had to take a test to get into, and then went to City College to get a free education, as uh, many uh, immigrants did at the time. He was accepted into uh, New York uh, University Medical School. At the time, it was very hard for uh, uh, Jewish uh, young men and women to get accepted uh, into medicine. The quota system uh, was uh, in effect. But uh, he stood out a little bit because he, when they asked him about a career in medicine, he uh, did not want to just practice medicine and make a living. He wanted to change medicine and do research. And that was not a a common thing at that time for uh, medical school graduates. So he was accepted into um, 
New York uh, University and then trained at Mount Sinai Hospital. And during this time, he met uh, and did some research with a very esteemed um, virologist named uh, Thomas Francis. And that later uh, became the the key to his uh, very first uh, major research accomplishment with influenza. His mother looms very large in uh, <laughs> as, as as a figure or, or who not just uh, was very uh, influential in, in terms of Salk's childhood, but seemed to be a very uh, he seemed to cast a long shadow over the course of his life. I was wondering if you could explain just briefly a bit about her and and her role in terms of shaping a young Jonas. Yeah. Well, she was in many ways, and I hate to use this term, kind of the classic Jewish mother, but uh, immigrant mother probably, um, who uh, who had uh, come uh, from uh, a um, an immigrant family and uh, wanted her children uh, to succeed. Uh, she married a very lovely man, his father, who was a lace maker, but uh, nowhere near as um, as prominent in in Jonas's life uh, as she was. Uh, the she Jonas's her oldest. She spent a considerable amount of uh, time with him and and helping him plan his career. Interestingly, early on when he was in high school, he very much wanted to be a lawyer. He always wanted to help the underdog. That was something that he it was very prominent. And his mother said, no, 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 he could not be a lawyer because he couldn't even win an argument with him. Um, she thought that this, then he said, well, he'd like to be a doctor. And she said, well, he didn't really have the stamina. He was he was a very small, thin child uh, to be a doctor, but a teacher. He He should be a teacher. Uh, so he uh, he said the first time he defied his mother in his entire life was when he applied to medical school. <laughs> but she was very proud of him um, and uh, and very supportive of his career. A lot of uh, of immigrant children, particularly Jewish immigrant uh, kids, uh, look to the pushing of their mother or their father, but predominantly the mother. As as a, as very difficult, something they had to kind of fight against. Uh, but he he respected his mother so much and uh, and really bowed to to uh, a lot of her uh, demands um, because he wanted to. Uh, so uh, she was a very important person in his life. And uh, his brothers, he had two younger brothers. They referred to um, Mr. And Mrs. Salk as the the uh, the uh, the Dutch, the general and the duchess or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so he begins this job with uh, with uh, Thomas Francis, and I was wondering if you could explain exactly what Francis a bit more about him and what it was he was doing, and also because this plays a role in in, in their lives when it was that that this was taking place. Okay, so. Um, Thomas Francis uh, was a virologist. The field of virology was relatively new at that time, and almost everybody that did any was anybody in virology had been trained at the Rockefeller uh, Institute. Uh, Thomas Francis was one of the first people to uh, identify um, a influenza uh, virus. It wasn't really known before, and the, that there were multiple strains, and that those strains constantly uh, changed, so that there'd be different strains every year um, of the uh, of the virus. 
So uh, Salk had done some research with him on virus on, on the viruses when he was uh, in medical school. And right after he finished his medical school training, uh, he wanted to go and work with Francis, who was now at the University of Michigan, and kept writing letters to him. And, and Francis would reply, well, we don't really have any funds. And Salk would say, well, I'll come and work for nothing. And they went back and forth and back and forth. But suddenly, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed. And when the U.S. entered the war, an influenza epidemic threatened the troops. And this brought back there had been lots of flu epidemics, but this really brought back memories of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed millions and millions around the world, but predominantly uh, killed young men. Uh, and almost as many young men died of uh, this influenza as died in the war. So Salk uh, suddenly wrote to Francis and said, I'm on my way. I'm moving to Ann Arbor to help you make an influenza vaccine. And uh, Francis was kind of taken aback, but it turned out that uh, uh, Salk worked very, very hard and helped him constitute the first uh, influenza vaccine. And then Francis was busy with uh, going around the world looking at potential uh, sites of epidemics. And so Salk uh, really did most of the trials uh, to prove the efficacy of the influenza vaccine. But Francis received. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, but Francis received uh, most of the uh, the accolades for it because he was a well-known person, and and uh, Jonas Salk was just a kind of a young whippersnapper. So he felt pretty stymied uh, by by this, and he went ahead and took a position at the University of Pittsburgh, and there he set out. Uh, this is Salk set out to make what he called a universal influenza vaccine, way ahead of his time. He was coming up with a way to add multiple strains to one vaccine so that it would affect year after year. Um, but uh, as usual, he was blocked by many of the senior scientists in the field, became very discouraged about it. One of the things that you describe in terms of this point in his life is the context. You mentioned the discouragement that he received from some senior colleagues, but it was also interesting to read about the conditions in which he worked, about how basically it's not just about Salk's life, but you're getting a sense as to what medical science was like at that time. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate about that a bit as it might inform a little later in our interview, how it shaped how they tested out the polio vaccine, especially Salk in in, in, uh, in, in, in 53 and 54 when he's first uh, pioneering this uh, vaccine and testing out to see if it has any effectiveness. Well, he, um, maybe I should say the transition, how he got into polio. So uh, first off, he when he moved to the University of Pittsburgh with the idea in mind of working on an influenza vaccine, and he had negotiated with them, he got there and found out that he had this tiny laboratory space that was in the prior morgue uh, at the University of Pittsburgh in the basement. So they had kind of, you know, in a sense, he thought they'd kind of swindled him. And uh, he spent uh, a lot of time, he was really a, a go-getter, but in a very nice way. He was a very retiring personality. But uh, he continued to uh, work very nicely with the public health uh, leader at the local hospital and with the university and bit by bit uh, uh, got himself a fairly large laboratory. Uh, there was no such thing really as good governmental funding at that period in time. So 
he constantly uh, was uh, looking for money uh, to do his uh, research. So in 1947, uh, Harry Weaver, who was the research director for the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which became better known as the March of Dimes later on, he had his eye on this uh, young go-getter and asked him to join their effort against polio, uh, staying at the University of Pittsburgh and doing uh, research there for polio. And, uh, of course, with it came money. So Jonas Salk said, sure, sure, he'd do that, keeping in mind that he'd kind of do that on the side and continue his influenza research. But once he became engaged in polio research, he became passionate about making a polio vaccine. He, and uh, eventually that took over his, all of his research, and he didn't get back to influenza until much later in his life. The state of polio research was very, what uh, was another part that you described in the book. It, it's interesting to see him as a relatively junior figure in this uh, hierarchy that he's in. And how, could, could you perhaps explain that a bit and, and, and how that uh, influences his, subsequ- uh, his subsequent efforts to, uh, mm-hmm. to, to get them to adopt his vaccine? Well, at that period in time, I'll just mention about the vaccines first. Really, the the three major vaccines were the um, uh, smallpox, uh, diphtheria, and rabies. And those were all vaccines that were made with a live virus. And the virus uh, had been weakened, so it wouldn't cause a full-blown disease, but it was weakened such that the uh, body developed a really minor form of the disease, and then you built up resistance by forming antibodies, and you would uh, have resistance for life. And so uh, the old story of Edward Jenner, who was a country doctor and, and found that cowpox, uh, he could take some of the virus from the cowpox, which was the same as smallpox, but very, very weakened, um, and vaccinate people, he could prevent smallpox. So that was the um, that was kind of the dogma. That was uh, how everyone felt that you should approach polio with a live weakened virus. Now, most of the polio researchers at that period in time, as I mentioned, were uh, trained at the Rockefeller Institute. Um, There was, uh, well, I don't know if medicine's changed today, but there was a very kind of elite group of scientists. And you really had to be kind of part of the the scientific brotherhood, a member of the of the various academies, and, um, and and there was a pecking order. So that when Basil O'Connor, who was the very powerful director of the uh, March of Dimes of the National Foundation, uh, wanted advice on how to approach polio, he uh, formed a committee of these very top leaders in polio research. And... Uh, Albert Sabin, who's a major person in the in this uh, uh, book, uh, was one of the leaders and probably one of the most outspoken on this committee that was going to advise the National Foundation how to approach polio. Well, Jonas Falk, here's this young guy, you know, just barely out of training, kind of wet behind his ears and uh, not really uh, accepted in the scientific community, even though he had helped co-develop this influence influenza vaccine, uh, everyone thought, well, it was really Thomas Francis. And uh, so they gave him a lot of kind of menial tasks uh, to do uh, as this group 
group was planning exactly how they were going to proceed to make a live polio vaccine. Well, Falk was, you know, a very nice person, sure. He said he'd, he'd try to find out how many different types of uh, polio virus there were and undertook a what's called a typing project and found there were three. And that's very important because if there are three different strains, then you have to cover them all in a vaccine. Uh, so that kind of gave him an, an opening into the, into the world of uh, polio research. But they were continuing to assign him uh, what he would do, and they had a certain timeline and plans, this powerful committee. But in 1952, uh, 57,000 Americans contracted polio. And Salk, Salk was a human scientist. He, he, he was a scientist, but he cared deeply about the public. And he didn't want to stand in line behind this cadre of senior scientists waiting to make a live virus vaccine on their timeline. So he had a very different agenda, uh, but he didn't tip his hand. Uh, he only, only uh, Basil O'Connor and, uh, and Harry Weaver were privy and actually uh, supported him uh, in his work, uh, which was all done really behind the backs of this powerful committee who was determining the role and, and the the process of making a polio vaccine. So how exactly does Salk go about demonstrating the efficacy of this vaccine that he's developing? Yeah. And, and what distinguishes it from the main effort to do the live virus that, that Sabin and others are, are focusing on? So, um, in, in fact, I think there are two aspects of his vaccine work that were really remarkable. And, and the first was that he did make a vaccine from a killed virus. And he had learned that technique. Interestingly, poly, um, influenza was a killed virus vaccine. It had to be because the strains kept changing every year. Um, but it's a very kind of different disease. So he, he did make this vaccine from a killed virus when their prevailing dogma that was that you could only obtain lifelong protection with a vaccine with a live weakened virus as had been the case in smallpox, diphtheria, and rabies. Um, the second remarkable thing about him is he just had a handful of laboratory assistants. He wasn't some large research institute or large pharmaceutical company. He was at University of Pittsburgh, which was kind of uh, an, uh, an indis undistinguished uh, medical school at the time. He and his group made the first polio vaccine in three months. Three months! <laughs> That's just... Amazing when you think of how long it takes to make things in this day and age and all the requirements uh, from the government. And then he proceeded to conduct his vaccine trial in secret at the Watson Home for Crippled Children, which was in Leedsville, uh, Pennsylvania. And all he wanted to do was see uh, if he could get antibody levels after he gave the vaccine. And so he gave every shot and drew every blood sample himself. He just hovered over the Watson Home for Crippled Children. And the parents and children and the staff were all sworn to secrecy so that this powerful committee nor did the press know this was going on. And one thing I thought was interesting is he said that when he looked back over the entire polio saga, that the highlight the high point for him in that entire thing was when he measured anti-polio antibodies in the first child he vaccinated. He said at that moment in time, he knew he could prevent polio. So, uh, and then he went on to test at another, uh, at another children's uh, home. So 
committee had no idea. No one knew this was going on except for Basil O'Connor and Harry Weaver. So finally, he did have to disclose his work to this powerful committee. And I had had all the minutes from that meeting. It was amazing. They just kind of were stunned. I mean, they just couldn't believe he had done this in a negative sense. Uh, and, And they started interrogating him. And Sabin depicted his results really as implausible, humiliating Salk. And then kind of a melee erupted as the committee members took sides. Half of them said, no, we need to wait until we have a live virus vaccine, which was going to be several years. It it takes much longer to develop a live virus vaccine. And those in favor of an immediate nationwide trial, because, you know, 57,000 people getting polio and those huge number dying and remaining crippled. Um, So the committee was in gridlock. And so Weaver just did a very smart thing. He just appointed a new committee called the Vaccine Advisory Committee, and it was (laughs) composed of healthcare leaders who favored an immediate large randomized trial. And so that was was great. Um, But Salk was not to have anything to do with the trial. You go on to describe what you call the the world's largest clinical trial, and it really does. Yeah, it, it's 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 one of my favorite chapters because you you do a great job of capturing just how uh, uh, epic this was. The, this idea of this nation coming together, the 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 sense of anticipation about knowing how it turns out. The uh the and you but you also chronicle how the. It, it, they're, they're, how they're wasting against time because of it. They're they're making mistakes and 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 they're 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 having to resolve differences, deep deeply seated differences, and they're having to do it on the fly as they're busy trying to throw all this together. Because again, that you know every day they wait is a day in which there might be another person coming down with polio. That's exactly right. So it was uh, before the trial uh, began, um, <clears throat> which was a big national trial that was supported by the March of Dimes, um, Weaver told Salk he couldn't do the trial because he, it would be considered suspect if he t- tested his own vaccine. So he turned the trial to design and analysis over to Tom, Thomas Francis. Uh, but Thomas Francis would do it just on the proviso that he would give no results prematurely, not even to Basil O'Connor or to join the Salk. So for a full year, Salk kind of stood on the sidelines and watched as this saga, as you say, uh, took place. So several pharmaceutical companies began large-scale production, and some of them took shortcuts, which he was worried would reduce its safety. And then the laboratory of biologic control in Washington began dictating changes in his vaccine, and he thought that might impair its efficacy. And then here they are trying to rush and get the vaccine out before the next polio season, which starts in May or June. And one thing after another happened. One of the pharmaceutical companies had vaccine that was tainted with a potentially dangerous uh, live virus. And then there were rumors of kidney damage. And each time one of these happened, everything came to a grinding halt until they could resolve it. Then the major needle, needle manufacturer went on strike. And then just as they were ready to start, a uh, Walter Winchell, who was a very popular radio commentator, warned the audience not to take the vaccine. He said it might be a killer. But despite all that, on April 26, uh, 1954, the what was the largest clinical trial in the history of American medicine started. And 
So the other thing that that I think is just quite amazing that you allude to is this wasn't a trial that was run by professional research organization or the United States government. This was a trial that was run essentially by the March of Dimes with the money given by volunteers and uh, across the United States. And as I say, when I was a child, you know, if you had a dime and you didn't know whether you're going to buy a bag of candy or put that dime in the March of Dimes <laughs> box, <laughs> uh, it, it was bought into by people, you know, here I was seven years old living in a little town in Tennessee, and it reached out uh, to, to everyone. And so Basil O'Connor said the trial would be run by volunteers. And so um, on on, uh, April 26th in 1954, a million, a million first, second, and third graders uh, in schools and clinics across the United States were assigned by random draw to either receive placebo or vaccine. And the people that it was almost like an army of volunteers uh, that conducted the trial. There were, I think, 20,000 physicians and public health officials, 40,000 nurses, 14,000 school principals, 50,000 teachers, and 220,000 housewives. And the trial was run just, you know, there were a few uh, flaws and, and, and flubs here and there where they'd get names mixed and things. But on the whole... It was run superbly and uh, and analyzed by Thomas Francis and his group uh, with no premature um, information given to Salk. And, and in fact, on the day of the announcement, he was to speak right after Francis. And that morning at breakfast, Francis gave him the results of the trial. You describe it's really the, quite exciting time. <laughs> oh, you, you describe it. it, it your, your description is, is is very melodramatic about how he this very unmelodramatic person, Thomas Francis, gets up there and he gives results in a very uh, <laughs> clinical way, and, and 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 he doesn't bother to to you know make it accessible, but he's basically makes this incredibly important announcement, one that you know that that that, that millions of of people throughout the world have been waiting to hear. That's right. But 80 to 90 percent effective against paralytic polio, and not one child had been harmed by it. And the world, it, it, it really, because I was there, the the celebration that erupted was enormous. With church bells were tolling and sirens ringing, and people running out into the street crying and hugging each other, and polio's conquered with the headlines, you know, across the world. And, and many people did compare it to the, cele- to the celebration to the end of a war. How was Salk affected by this news and the attention that the polio, that the success of the polio vaccine now <laughs> received? Well, he never thought for one minute that it wouldn't be a success. If it wasn't a success, it would have been, he thought, because uh, the formulation of his vaccine had been changed. So he always said that he was confident that but what he didn't anticipate was what followed and uh, Edward R. Murrow who had befriended him said to him uh, that day young man a great tragedy has just befallen you you've lost your on anonymity and it didn't take Salk long you know he just thought he'd go home that day and then go back to the lab but within a month he uh, or the University of Pittsburgh on his behalf got 10,000 letters, telegrams, 
phone calls. As he walked down the street, everyone came up to shake his hand. He couldn't go into a restaurant or hotel without causing a stir like a, a movie star. And, you know, he was he was really touched by this expression of gratitude, but he really he was suffocating. And then he saw the dark side of fame, the stalkers, obsessives, con artists. And years later, he told a New York Times writer, it's as if I've been public property ever since. It's brought me, I'm quoting, it's brought me enormous gratification, opened many opportunities, but at the same time placed many burdens on me. It altered my career, my relationships with colleagues. I'm a public figure, no longer one of them, which is kind of sad. It reminds me of a line I, I, I once heard in a movie about how, you know, he doesn't care about fame, but fame sure cares about him now. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> Although, you know, it's he 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 liked a little bit of it, I think. <laughs> Even though he he was uh, an introvert and he he was honored by the public right and left. I mean, it was amazing the number of awards he re- received and also the highest awards from heads of states like presidential citation, the French Legion of Honor, the Nehru Award. But he really craved um, kind of recognition by the scientific community, and that he did not get. And and that shocked me. That was one of the most surprising things I found out in my research. Um, He he got very few uh, awards from the scientific community, very few. Uh, He was passed up by the Nobel Prize. Most people thought he won it. But the Nobel Committee concluded that his work wasn't, quote, prize-worthy. But probably more egregious, he was blackballed from the National Academy of Sciences, which is a an organization started back in Lincoln, I think by President Lincoln, that recognizes the top physician scientists in the country. Here, here's a man who had just developed a vaccine that could prevent a crippling disease, and they he was blackballed. And some of the members said, well, he really, it wasn't a true scientific discovery. Uh, one of them likened him to a, a director of product development at a pharmaceutical company. And Albert Sabin, who was the worst, said he described Salk's work as kitchen chemistry. He used to say, oh, anybody could go in the kitchen and do what he did. And, and, and of so, course, he, he, was, he wasn't far behind when he comes out with his own uh, live own vaccine. virus vaccine just a yeah. few years later. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I say Saul didn't like the fame, and it was like an albatross around his neck, he reached out, and I think this is part of the reason he was rejected by the scientific community or spurred, spun by them. He, he really reached out to the public in ways that very few physician scientists ever had in the history of medicine, say, except Louis Pasteur, I think. I mean, he... He gave interviews to Good Housekeeping and Parent Magazine. He went on television and showed the viewing audience how to make a vaccine with a wiring blender. I mean, no serious scientist should do that. And uh, they accused him of kind of crossing this line of expected academic behavior and soliciting uh, media attention. Um, But... I think with his success came a wave of celebrity that had been accorded few scientists in the history of medicine. And there was a little bit of of, uh, jealousy, uh, I think, there as well from the scientific community. It wasn't just about the fact that he did his research uh, behind closed doors. (laughs) 
Did he try to do anything with that fame in terms of uh, advancing other goals in his career? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then we can come back to the fate of his polio vaccine, by the way, which is very, very important. But I think that allowed him uh, uh, to uh, do a lot of things uh, that he would not have otherwise been able to do. He wanted, he always dreamed of forming an institute where scientists and humanists would work side by side, as he said, imbuing the sciences with the conscience of man, because he really was at heart a hum, human, humanistic uh, scientist, I guess is the best way to put it. And so he was able to get uh, money uh, from Basil O'Connor and others, and he built the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, where he attracted some of the most prestigious or most accomplished scientists and humanists um, and gave them total academic freedom and lifetime funding. And so the, he was able to build uh, the Salk Institute. When he wanted, when he was uh, through with his polio vaccine, he did want to return to his laboratory and he was kind of vague in what he wanted to do. He said he was going to set, uh, setting out to harness the immune system, which kind of the general public didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. But that meant he was going to study two disparate diseases, cancer, in which immunity had failed, and multiple sclerosis, in which an overactive immune system kind of destroys one's own immune uh, nervous t uh, system tissue. And a lot of the funding for both of those came from uh, the public, from uh, private funds, from individuals or from groups, as opposed to being funded uh, by scientific organizations, so the National Cancer Institute, the National Institute of Health. He he never wrote a successful grant, which is the normal way scientists get funding. So I think his, his fame uh, certainly allowed him uh, to do other endeavors that he never would have normally done. Or been funded to do, excuse me. You also described the effect that the celeb his celebrity has on his personal life. He, he was married uh, in, in, in yeah. the 1940s, and uh, his wife Donna had give, had you know, raised his family, had been there for him. But you described, even with all the publicity, you you already seen the signs of tension. What happened after that? Well, um, just to go back, it wasn't just his wife. I mean, he, he first of all, he had little time for his wife and three sons, and that's obvious from the way he worked day and night. Um, and uh, the the press used to have these pictures of him reading to his sons or preparing to fly a kite to and join a barbecue with his family, and those were all posed. They, they really rarely happened. His sons were sent off to the east to boarding schools. And they all told me that kind of worse than having a legendary father or husband, that they became celebrities by association. So Peter Salk said, and he, Peter was just kind of a, a very shy, small child, but when he played uh, Little League, if he got up to bat, everyone expected him to hit a home run because he was Peter Salk. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his wife Donna could, she was also very, very shy, and she could not... Uh, could not really accommodate to the uh, celebrity, um, and um, and so they did get divorced. He again, when you say did his fame help him, I, I think it did help him in his next uh, marriage, and that is uh, subsequently um, he married uh, a French artist, a, an accomplished French French artist, Francois Gillot, whose popular book A Life with Picasso detailed her years as Picasso's mistress. Now, she was um, 
uh, considerably uh, younger uh, than he was. I think she was uh, 48 and he was 55 when they got married in 1970. And she was beautiful. She was talented. She was beautiful. She was French. And uh, Jonas Salk was very popular in um, in France. Um, she remembered her mother talking about uh, this great Jonas Salk. And uh, so they had been uh, introduced by uh, some of his friends in La Jolla. And uh, they started uh, dating. And he, he pursued her uh, kind of with the same tenacity that he had pursued his polio vaccine. And when he proposed, uh, she said, well, no, she couldn't marry him. There were too many, too many issues. So they were having dinner in, in, on the beach in La Jolla, California. And so uh, he said to her, well, just make a list of requirements <laughs> and you'd marry me. And so uh, he said, I'll go take a walk and I'll come back and, so uh, she made this whole list, and he looked over everyone. And I, I interviewed her, by the way. She was telling me this wonderful story. Um, and he said, well, he could agree to everyone. And one of those requirements was that they lived together in La Jolla only six months a year so that she could have six months uh, by herself to uh, paint um, and do her artwork in France. So they did marry, and she really, everyone kind of saw a transformation in his life uh, because, you know, he was kind of a, a laboratory nerdy guy. Now he hiked, he sailed the Greek islands, he took French, he underwent rolfing, learned yoga, joined a sensitivity group, and he now wore bell bottoms and open neck shirts with a neck scarf, and his hair grew out in long waves. And uh, in fact, his. Uh, sister-in-law uh, told me uh, that uh, she called him Frenchified. <laughs> um, and so people couldn't believe how happy he was. But as time went on, uh, things started to get less and less wonderful. In fact, Gilo, uh, when someone asked her how she ended up with two such venerable men, uh, Picasso and Salt, she said, lions mate with lions, which kind of speaks to the kind of person uh, she was. Um, but uh, the kind of the radiance of their relationship dimmed, and she spent more and more time in uh, in France. In fact, she said if it weren't for her husband, uh, she wouldn't spend uh, five minutes in uh, La Jolla, California. Um, so in the meantime, uh, throughout both marriages, uh, he did um, have um, affairs, and um, although she did not... <clears throat> uh, um, Donna had had died, his first wife, so I did not get to interview her. And Francois Gillot uh, did not did not talk about uh, that aspect of their lives, but uh, uh, and, and that certainly was uh, problematic. Uh, but I think they kind of had an understanding among them um, that they both could also have other aspects to their lives. <laughs> you also described, though, how his professional career in the 1970s was facing this growing setback with the Salk Institute, how he was, uh, how his, some of the, the people he had drawn to it became a little condescending toward him. And more importantly, how he was gradually being squeezed out of the management of, of the Institute by the administrators right. that, that had come in. 
Well, they all, you know, he, he attracted some amazing, amazing people. Francis Crick, Bernalski, who did the Ascent of Man. I mean, just incredible people. And there was this kind of love feast initially that it was going to be a Shangri-La for all of these people who could now think and they didn't have to worry about grants and they could all interact. And that kind of began to to fall apart a little bit. Um, and certainly a, a kind of chasm between him and the other members of uh, these distinguished scientists and humanists started uh, widening pretty quickly. And part of it was that he insisted on running the Institute, and he was a terrible administrator and, and, a, and a really a bad communicator. And so the Institute was constantly kind of teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. And here these men had given up their laboratories and their academic positions at, you know, at Harvard and Yale and Oxford and everything to join him. Um, but secondly, he still maintained a laboratory and used funding from the Salk Institute uh, for his research in cancer and multiple sclerosis. And that research really was not top-notch, and it, it began to become um, worrisome to the other members of the Institute that what would people think about the Institute when the kind of research coming, coming out of his laboratory. And so they really kind of conspired to shut down his laboratory. Um, he at one point said uh, that he felt like a pariah in his own house. Um, so although the, uh, and in the end, science really dominated the Institute. So even though the Salk Institute is fabulous, it's it's been a tremendous scientific uh, success. Um, but he thought it was one of his uh, greatest, I wouldn't use the word failure because he never used the word failure, disappointments, I guess. You described how it moved away from that initial vision of the merging of of the of right. science and and and, hum, and humanism to becoming much more of a of a conventional scientific research establishment, and that, in a sense, was reflecting sort of that transition away from what you know Salk being this you know presence to just being the name on the door. Yeah, yeah, but and it yet, is an amazing place. I mean, it's beautiful. It was designed by Lewis Kahn, and it overlooks the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, you know, when Salk walked through the Institute, it, and he was in love with it. He used to touch the walls. I mean, he it was heaven. I mean, this kid that grew up in, in Harlem and the Bronx, and now he, you know, just looked out to the ocean and the sunsets, and, and he was transformed. He He loved the Institute. And so... It, it was really tragic for him that it turned out the way it did for him. And yet, that's not the the last phase of his life. It, he he oh, no. experiences this, <laughs> and, and and then he undertakes uh, in the nineteen eighties this remarkable challenge. I mean, it, it, he where he decides he's going to go and and, and defeat AIDS. Yeah. So, um, you know, before I get to AIDS, or either after, you tell me. I, I'd like to scroll back to what happened to the polio vaccine. Well, why don't we go and talk about that first? Yes. Okay. So um, five years after that polio trial, the incidence of polio had been reduced by 90% in the United States. But still, all the senior scientists said, nope, nope, it's just a stopgap. It won't give total lifetime immunity. We need a live virus vaccine. And there was kind of a race among several scientists uh, to develop one. And Albert Sabin rose to the top. And he tested his vaccine in Russia because 
everybody in the U.S. was starting to get the Salk vaccine and said it was effective and it was safe. And so, uh, and it could be delivered in a sugar cube. So it was, it was more convenient. It was more acceptable. It wasn't as costly because you didn't have needles and whatnot. And so in the early 60s, um, the Public Health Service recommended replacing Salk's vaccine with the Sabin vaccine. And there was a lot of kind of dirty politics that went on with that, too. Remember, Salk was not a favored person in the scientific community. And Salk was shocked, shocked that they would do this. I mean, he kept warning that, you know, a weakened live virus, yeah, it's weak, but it could revert to a more deadly virus and actually cause polio. And he went to every major medical association, every governmental agency, Congress, whatnot, trying to get people to see that this was a dangerous thing to do. And um, and in a sense, he was like a lone crusader. You kind of wonder, where were people? All the scientists were backing the oral vaccine. And so by 1968, his vaccine was no longer produced in the United States. Kind of shocking. Um, and he spent the rest of his life trying to reverse what he called this politically d- uh, driven, risky uh, decision. And there well, were cases. Time went on, yeah, there were cases. Yeah, there where... were cases. There were cases of uh, people getting uh, polio who got the Sabin vaccine. Now, Sabin said that was absolutely ludicrous. They'd probably already been exposed, or they didn't really have polio, or on and on. And Saul kept at it. I mean, it was just phenomenal how he he kept over and over and over again pounding the, you know, the the different organizations, and and just getting a people turning away from him and ignoring it. Finally, his vaccine. He then worked in France with the Mario company and uh, made a a better, stronger polio vaccine uh, with even better immunity and that it could be incorporated into the normal children's vaccine, so the diphtheria um, and the um, uh, vaccine and uh, that children get uh, and smallpox vaccine. And uh, so uh, it finally uh, was, finally the, um, the, uh, his vaccine was reinstated, but he'd been dead for several years. So it was a huge, a huge saga that kind of went on and on from the day of the announcement. And I bring it up because it's very interesting. Uh, the polio has almost been extinguished from the world. I mean, that's amazing. And I get my polio weekly update and the number of uh, cases of polio, wild polio cases in 2016 was 37, and it was 16 this year. And the prediction is by 2019, there will be no wild polio virus circulating. But last year, there were five cases of polio from the Sabin vaccine, because both the Sabin vaccine is used in some parts of the world uh, where they can't give shots very well. And 80 cases this year. 80 cases of polio from the vaccine itself, and those were mostly in uh, in Syria and Pakistan and the Congo. Um, so uh, the organizations, the uh, Global Polio Initiative is uh, Eradication Initiative is uh, trying to phase out the Sabin vaccine and only use the Salk vaccine. 
One of the points no. that you, you make about that that I thought was very interesting was that in, in spite of, of, of Salk's deep, passionate commitment to his vaccine and his deep, passionate opposition to Sabin's vaccine, he never made it personal. He, that he, he never, it, was, it was never quite a, a personal animosity for him towards Sabin. No, it wasn't, but it was for Sabin to him. And so I spent a lot of time with Sabin's daughter. Uh, and she said, oh, Sabin used to say it was about humankind, but it was all about him. He used to say, I'm the one who has the polio vaccine. And he thought that the day he died. Um, but Hulk at one point said, you know, this isn't about us two people. This is, this is about two vaccines, and this is about how to get rid of polio. But I know someone's going to depict it as two little boys from the Bronx duking it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so shall I tell you about AIDS quickly? Please do. I know. Okay. So um, and Salk was kind of rolling down. He was his the Salk Institute had had faded, and he was writing philosophical books and whatnot, and getting a little more kind of solitary. And suddenly, the AIDS epidemic strikes. And in his 70s, he saw these huge number of young men, gay men, dying of this mysterious disease caused by HIV. And it was almost like he he put on his armor and got on his horse and galloped right back into the battle. Uh, it was quite amazing. He was just energized by this terrible new uh new epidemic and uh and it, it was interesting because many scientists kind of dismissed his efforts as kind of like well he's just an old man attempting to recapture his form of glory but initially he played a very crucial role kind of the role of solomon because there was a dispute between two star scientists an american and a french who both claimed they had discovered the aids virus and it had gotten almost into an international incident and the field was getting stifled because of this argument. And he played the role of Solomon, went back and forth, not asked by anyone between the two and had them come to an agreement of exactly what had happened. And uh, so he, he really helped the field go forward. Now, most researchers, because this was a brand new virus and whatnot, were really wanted to understand how HIV destroys the immune system before they could even think about therapeutic inventions, uh, interventions. But Saul kind of charged forward, saying thousands are going to die for every year that we procrastinate. So he no longer had a laboratory, of course, at the Salk Institute, but he helped form a company called Immune Response and designed a treatment vaccine that would delay the time between infection with the virus and development of full-blown AIDS. And he first did a trial at uh, the University of Southern California with Alexandra Levine. And in, um, in uh, I can't remember, 50 or 80 patients, I guess 82 patients, 60% who got the vaccine did get an improvement in their immune function and were able to clear the HIV, the virus, from uh, their bloodstream. So he, again, uh, he took a lot of uh, flack for this. People said, well, you know, this is just crazy. Uh, you know, we really need to take the proper steps in the right order to have a vaccine. But he marched right ahead and was ready to start a very a large national trial 
um, when he kind of reached an impasse with the FDA about the trial design. So kind of life had changed now. The rules had changed. He just couldn't do it at a Watson home for crippled children. Now, you know, he's talking about a national trial that the FDA was going to control. Um, But he did have, I think, one of his most important roles in AIDS, in the whole AIDS saga, (coughs) because he was kind of still a rock star by the public. He attracted the media and kind of helped move the field forward because he helped the public understand that AIDS wasn't about gay men. It was about a new disease in which they all had to deal, the public had to deal with. And so I think he did play an important, uh, important role there. And then his, finally, he kind of came to agreement with the FDA and was just ready to start the trial when he died suddenly. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Um, I am working on a biography or a story of a survivor of uh, Hiroshima. Um, her name is uh, Tsutsuko uh, Nakamura, uh, but then her married name is Thurlow. She's Canadian. And uh, she was 13 years old um, and near the epicenter. And uh, it's a study of initially of her surviving um, and, uh, you know, what life was like prior to and after in Hiroshima and what all happened to her family. She interestingly uh, spent the rest of her, many, they're called habaksha uh, survivors, they don't like the word survivor, um, were kind of embarrassed about it, would never say anything about it. She was one of the first to be very, very vocal about her experience, and she spent a good part of her life uh, trying to uh, to warn about uh, nuclear weapons and, in fact, was one of the major people involved in the U.N. Uh, signing, uh, getting mem- so many countries to sign the anti-nuclear pact. Um, she uh, is was is called the heart and soul of ICANN, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so uh, she was a speaker at the Nobel uh, Peace Prize in Stockholm uh, a few weeks ago. Um, And uh, she's a fascinating woman with a fascinating tale. Uh, And not, I'm departing from medicine, (laughs) in a sense. (laughs) Well, I I do look forward to reading that book, because it sounds like it will be every bit as interesting as your your Salk biography. Uh, Charlotte, thanks very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. 